anxiety and, and panic attack can be a consequence of not having that closure. So it's a really powerful, powerful need. He's a neuroscientist and world-renowned expert in the study of perception. There's something called an intrinsic reward. How many of you, when you woke up this morning, thought you saw the world as it really is? So when you exercise, when you're lifting weights, you I imagine you feel pretty good afterward. Right, you're getting an intrinsic. Oh, amazing afterwards. Three-time main stage uh, TED speaker. So we call other people. We project a meaning onto them based on our biases and our experience. You're getting an intrinsic yeah. reward. Why? Because evolution said that's a good idea. Let's make sure you know they keep doing that. <laughs> right. That's what an orgasm is. Dr. Bolotto is a neuroscientist, author, and founder of the Lab of Misfits. He's emulated nightclubs in his lab where he's locked people in dark rooms and hired actors to act out unpredictably. View has given multiple TED Talks, is a frequent keynote speaker at companies such as Google, Apple, and Universal, and has works that have been featured in PBS, BBC, Big Think, National Geographic, and much more. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the invitation. So um, there was something that you said in the t TED talk that I uh, I enjoyed. Which um, which one I think was this that? Is a, uh, I can't quite remember which one, but one I believe this is kind of a found. Or the perception. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one was so dope. Uh, but you said we have a fundamental need for closure. Mm. That we need closure, which yeah. I think is is definitely a, a fundamental theme in um, your works. But this is something that I feel that we all relate to. Like we feel this when we get the uh, silent treatment or get broken up with out of nowhere or during a cliffhanger on like the season finale of our favorite show. Yeah. And I find that many times we jump to an assumption that oftentimes is the worst possible scenario. Okay. So I'm wondering how can we apply this to our lives to help ourselves from feeling shackled as if we can't move forward until we have this closure? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, um, just to give people a sense of what we mean by closure, music is a, um, a really lovely example. So do you ever go to nightclubs? You go have a club? Yes. Uh, okay. And I imagine a lot of the people that are <laughs> listening to you go clubbing. Okay. So we often work with DJs. So you all know how, how the DJ will ramp up the beat, right? They're ramping it up, ramping it up, right? And they're holding you there. And then at yeah, some yeah, point yeah. they drop the beat. Um, mm -hmm. and then suddenly everybody starts, you know, moving and moving and moving, and yeah. like, but then they'll yeah, also yeah, yeah, play, yeah. play with you on that, right? They'll drop it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll drop it to a minor chord or, you know, and then it's like, ah, you can feel it. Right. Um, so that's, your, that's closure. That's giving you closure. And it's a real felt sense. It's not just a, um, it's not, you can feel it in your body, that, that, that sense of closure. So. Um, so our brain really loves that closure. Why? Because our brain really loves that moment of certainty. It's like, ah, oh, okay, I now know something, or I have that that lack of stress. And actually, one of our greatest, um, uh, one of the things that we love more than anything is that moment before the closure, the anticipation, right? The anticipate because you know when you're in the club and everyone's waiting and everyone's excited, right? And then everyone knows it's going to happen. So that's where your dopamine actually can be the highest is an anticipation of closure. Okay. Um, so, so we love that closure, but I don't think it's necessarily something we need to avoid. I think it's something that we can give ourselves in our life. Um, and we can give ourselves moments of closure. And it's, it's not that you have to have constant closure because that would be, that itself would be, you'd be dead in a way because it'd be like, Imagine listening to music and all you ever get is the crescendo. You never get the buildup. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about sex, for instance, that's part of the beauty of sex is the buildup, all the things that come before mm-hmm. the closure, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, closure is actually part of a beautiful cycle, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're right, though, that when we don't get that closure, um, especially in a situation like a breaking up of a relationship or something, often we'll come, we'll go to um, uh, something very negative. We'll tell ourselves a negative story about why, in order to give ourselves closure, it must have been this, it must have been that. And, and what we're trying to do is find that closure, find that certainty, rather than just sitting with the fact that I don't know. And sitting with not knowing is incredibly difficult for your brain. Right? So we can actually maybe give ourselves, there's a couple of lessons there, one of which is to try to learn to sit with not knowing. Sometimes just to sit with ambiguity. I mean, it's such a powerful force that people, for instance, who have something seriously wrong with them um, in terms of their physical body, um, they have pain, they have something, they don't understand where it's coming from. And maybe they'll be searching for a year. It's like, where is this symptom coming from? I don't know where it's coming from. It's driving them crazy. Um, And suddenly they'll get a diagnosis. And that diagnosis might be terrible. It might be cancer. But in that moment, there's a sense of relief. Like, oh, well, at least I now know. Right? That's how powerful that need is. So part of it is just being aware that we have this need. And that often we are trying to fulfill that need in a way that actually doesn't serve us. So better in some sense to sit with the lack of closure than to give yourself an artificial one that is actually pathological. Hmm. Right, and in some sense, anxiety and, and panic attack can be a consequence of not having that closure. So it's a really powerful, powerful need. How do you think we can um, sit with that closure, though? Because I know, or not with the closure, but the anxiety of that. Um, yeah. Because I feel like that's one of the hardest things for people to do, isn't it? Um, do you find that for yourself? I do definitely find that for myself. I think I've had to create for myself like a lot of mantras to like try to get past it, like different perspectives of my way of thinking about the situation in order for me to just kind of move forward without it uh, taking up all this space in my mind when I'm trying to do other things. So what would help for you? I, I think it's situation-based, but I would say, for example, hmm, it's uh, like trying my best to because because i i have the tendency for myself to jump to these assumptions um and i think most people probably can relate to that but i'd say trying to assume either the best case scenario instead of the worst or just trying not to make any assumptions whatsoever yeah is to sit with the ambiguity. So I, I agree with you. So right. what was very, your brain is very reflexive. In fact, I would argue mm. that almost everything we're doing right in this moment is a, is a reflex. We have potentially no free will in the moment. Okay. Um, so it's very natural to jump to an immediate assumption. But then you have a part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex, which sits at the front. And that's the part of your brain that you're exercising when you're, for instance, meditating or 
when you go to the gym, do you always want to go to the gym every single time? My guess is probably not. No. Right? There are probably no. times, you know, I imagine you're probably very disciplined and, you know, you otherwise you wouldn't be where you are. You were, you're, you, you know, you wouldn't have able to build where you are, right? So I imagine there are lots of times when you didn't want to go, but you, you did it anyway, right? You ignored what I call the voice. And what you're using is your prefrontal cortex. It's the most recent innovation on your brain. Okay. And it's something that, for instance, babies come into the world, they have a very poorly developed prefrontal cortex. And that's what really gives you agency. It gives you agency to, to actually suppress your reflexes. So you might have an immediate reflex to do this, and then your prefrontal can kick in and say, actually, let's just, I appreciate that was my original reflex. Let's not act on that for the moment. Let's just wait. Let's just pause. So you could argue the first step to doing something is to do nothing, is to stop. Mm. Right? And mm. so when you have, when, you know, you wake up early in the morning, it's like, I imagine you, you know, you, I imagine, you know, for whatever reason, you're sore, whatever it might be. And that voice is telling you, you know what, let's just stay in bed. Let's just not go. Right? That's your natural reflex. It kind of makes sense. But now your prefrontal mm -hmm. is going to kick in and say, wait, let's not necessarily act on that. Let's pause. Let's stop. Is this actually, where, where would I go with that? You know, you're starting to add in some thinking into that process rather than this reacting. Okay. So like you, like you found, just pause. Maybe just don't jump to that conclusion or be aware that you are and then say, huh, why did I, why did I jump to that conclusion? What does that say about me? Because when we act, we both reveal ourselves and we also create ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because how we act towards something is going to shape how we're going to act in the future. Equally, how we act for, uh, towards something is how we think about it because of our past. So in that mm -hmm. moment, we're revealing our past, but also creating our future. And that's potentially where we have agency. It's like, like let's just pause. What do mm -hmm. I really want to do? So that's one point. The other is preparation. Right? If everything you're doing right now is a reflex, well, then where's my agency? Well, my agency is in the possibility of actually preparing myself for the next reflex. Preparing myself for the moments when I'm going to experience loss or pain. Right? So we can actually prepare for pain. Pain's inevitable. Pain's going to happen. If you try to live life without pain, you're not going to live very well. Right? Pain's mm -hmm. going to happen. But what we can do is we can prepare for that pain. And in some sense, I would argue that's what bodybuilding is. That's what exercise is. You're actually preparing your brain and your body for future moments of uncertainty. Right? Mm. Right? Think about when you're stretching. Do you stretch? I imagine you, you also um, work on your flexibility, which we should do, right? Mm, right. We, yeah, we I try to have, at least. Right, right. So we want to have flexibility. It's very important for your body. But now, why do we want to be flexible? What's the point of being flexible? Well, um, it's because your body is being prepared for the moments when it needs to be agile. Imagine being super rigid and now something happens, the wind comes, something knocks you off balance. You're not prepared for it. You're not agile in your body, right? Mm -hmm. So by stretching, you're becoming agile. You're preparing yourself for future um, unbalance. So example is my mom, I actually happen to be visiting my mom. She's 87 years old. She has Parkinson's disease, stage four, okay? Mm -hmm. And you know, so she's shaking away and, and I watch her with her therapist 
Now, the reality is that if she falls, this is not to be cool. This is just a reality. If she falls, the probability of death in the next 12 months is 50% with someone in her condition, which means every step she takes is a life or death situation, quite literally, right? But she has the courage to take steps nonetheless, right? That's where cur- true courage lives, okay? Now, when I watch her with her therapist, he's not trying to teach her how to walk in balance. He's got her standing up near the sofa. He's got a belt on her so she doesn't fall. And he's pushing her. And she's, you know, she's being knocked off balance. And we talk about why are you doing that? Because the reality is at some point, she's going to be out of balance. And so I want her to be ready for that moment. Right. And that's where we can actually really engage with mm. future uncertainty by preparing for the fact that it's going to happen. And preparing ourselves in a way that we have agency over. So our bodies, for instance, our health, our physical health, our mental health, and that through our physical health, we will improve our mental health. And anxiety is the fear of what might happen in the future. So if I feel prepared for the future, then I'm maybe going to feel less anxious about the future. So I'm trying to think about this in the perspective of, say, like a breakup, right? Um, Say that your, uh, your spouse or your woman or whoever you're speaking to comes to you and says, I need to talk, right? And, and, and you feel words, like yeah. you know what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like you know what it's about, but you don't want it to be about that, but you, it's probably about that. What would you recommend in this situation? I don't know. Uh, what I would recommend in that situation is to listen and humility, right? Um, and also be at some point reflecting on what brought you to that situation. Now, that's not to pass blame. I'm not interested in blame as such, especially if two people are doing their best, right? Um, it could be that there's a lack of resonance. You know, you have some priorities, I have others, and those priorities just don't align. Um, but I see these as, in the moment, it's deeply painful. I've been through it myself multiple times, right? Also with mm-hmm. children. I've been through a divorce with three children uh, who I call my gremlins. Um, and cause if you watch the gremlins, you know, the, the bar scene, that's them. Right. Um, and so, so deeply, deeply painful, but there's a difference between painful and traumatic. So things can be painful. Doesn't mean they're traumatic. So when we add meaning to pain, when we say, oh, the reason why I'm being left is because I'm a fool or because I'm an idiot or because, you know, now I'm creating a trauma around the pain. So engage with the fact that it's painful, but maybe hold for the moment on the meaning that you attach to it. And then at some point, you can also use it as an opportunity to say, how can I use this as, an, as a way to expand myself? And that's where you get the pursuit of self-honesty. Right? Because maybe there was something that you were doing that actually led. It doesn't have to be you. It could be that they're a narcissist or they don't want to engage or they're, a fear, they're afraid of being intimate and so therefore you want intimacy and they don't so they're now going to leave, right? So it's a complex situation, but it's one that you can actually expand yourself. But in that moment, I would my advice is to listen and to listen for understanding, right? Because if you truly love someone, the aim is not for them to be with you. The aim is for them to expand themselves mm-hmm. in the context of you, empowered by you, not enabled, but empowered by you, right? Mm-hmm. That's the role of parenting, I would argue, right? 
is yeah. to empower these young people to be better than you. I like that. Thanks. And then, um, what was and then when it happens to you, don't, you know, a natural response is like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to put myself in that position again. Well, that could be a good thing because maybe you're with a narcissist or maybe with someone who was actually not good for you. And that's a good learning experience. But to avoid love altogether, that's easy, right? Anyone can be kind of happy to a certain extent on themselves, but love is a remarkable context that reveals you to you. It, it can actually show you in those moments the things that you find challenging. And so you might feel like, oh, okay, I'll get rid of the relationship. See, I'm, see how happy I am? Mm -hmm. I never face these things. Well, of course you're not, because you're now in a different context, because you mm -hmm. no longer have the triggers for those things that maybe were difficult in yourself. Yeah, that's a good perspective. And I feel oftentimes, too, when, when our assumptions are correct, um, we feel like, oh, we, sh we should have always trusted our intuition. But then on the other side, I feel like when our assumptions are incorrect, then we're just relieved and we're like glad that it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We kind of use them one way or the other. Um, but mm -hmm. it's interesting when people say, you know, trust your intuition. Um, that can be right or wrong, right? So what's in it, what is intuition? Intuition might feel like it just feels right. It just feels right. But now imagine someone who's had a really difficult or even traumatic background. They've suffered real pain. Now, their intuition might be to avoid intimacy. So as soon as someone gets really close to them, their intuition might say, well, this is scary. Step away. Right? Because that's the reflexive response that they've learned, but they didn't realize they've learned it. So it's very difficult to know whether my intuition is where that intuition is coming from and whether it's a positive or a negative intuition. I see. I feel like I can uh, feel Dr. Joe Dispenza has talked about something related to this. Yeah. Um, but uh, you mentioned our power lies in that place between connecting our past with our future. Yeah. And in that place, we can make those changes. So the things that are in our past that we don't want to be repeated are no longer repeated in our future. However, I do believe that a lot of the things from our intuition come from the pains of our past. You can do, yeah. As well as mm -hmm. the pleasures, right? But negative things can be more saliently encoded than positive things, right? They can be much more robust in our brain. And the reason is because during evolution, dying was easy, right? We evolved not to, not to, we, we evolved to not die. That's not the same thing as evolving to thrive. So, mm -hmm. um, and so hence why, for instance, the press focuses on the negative. Why the algorithms for Instagram or Facebook show you conflict because that's far more salient to your brain than positive. But that's something that you can also have some control over. You can decide what you want to expose yourself to. But you can only do that to a certain extent when you become aware, when you actually actually increase your consciousness. So you can be aware of stuff, but you can also be conscious of things. Conscious means that you're going to be more proactive. You're going to be more, mm. you can engage, whereas aware is like, oh, okay, that happened, oh, that happened, oh, that happened, I'm aware that that happened, right? But that's not necessarily to live proactively. So we only have a choice when we know we have one. And we only have a choice once you become, have that self-honesty and that self-conscious um, to understand where these things might be coming from and then to pursue expanding yourself by how you respond to them. But more importantly, it's actually how you prepare for them in the first place. Um, why, why, again, did you say that it's um, that we should let go of our biases and our assumptions? 
So I don't think we can let go of our bias and assumption, right? So mm. the idea of stepping outside the box, I think, is a, in some sense a silly idea because all you do is you step inside a new box. Because think about it. Did you, did you um, check your chair before you sat down? Presumably not. Yes. Oh, you did? To make sure it would hold your weight? Uh, well, I checked it. I just checked it to make sure it was a, a good height. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you checked to say, oh, is this going to hold me? Is, is it going to collapse? Right? That I, I presume not. not. Have you checked the blueprints of your, of your house, of your home, to make sure that they're all proper? Right? No. Do you have someone taste your food before you eat it? Right? No. 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 Do you check the driving credentials of the people on the other road? Of course not, right? The point is that our bias and assumptions are essential for our survival. So this idea that people say that biases are somehow bad is a silly idea itself because we cannot live without assumptions and biases. If you literally had, you, you couldn't take a step, right? Um, if every single time before you lifted weights, you're checking the cable, right? You're making sure everything's not going to collapse. You'd never be able to lift weights right? The bench that you're mm -hmm. going to line, right? You just wouldn't be able, you literally wouldn't be able to take a step. I mean, you have assumptions that your legs aren't going to give away every time mm -hmm. you take a step. It's amazing that how much trust and faith we put ourselves, we put our, that we give to other people that literally are life or death. Everyone who's driving the opposite direction of you, you have trust in them. You have an assumption that they're not going to crash into you. And then sometimes you're wrong. Right? I see. Right? So we can't, we, we can't live without assumptions and biases. So that's really not the problem. The problem is we're often not aware of what they are. Right? So it's, it's the lack of awareness, the ignorance of our assumptions, or that, first of all, that we have them. So we'll engage in life as if we're objective. Right? And we might say, oh, well, you know, Nile has his views, I've got mine, but, you know, I'm going to tolerate him. I know mine are better, but it's like, hey, I'm going to be enlightened and, you know, we all have our different ways, but I'm going to behave as if mine's the best way. And if Niles is different, well, okay, I'm just going to let him get on with it, right? That's not truly respect. That's just tolerating. But that's assuming that I know the truth and we confuse my truth with the truth, right? They're not the same thing, but people behave as if their truth is the truth and they'll share it with people. And then they'll try to convince them. And then they'll seek validation for their truth, as is the, the truth. And you get this in conversations with couples all the time. There's no humility in that, right? So what we really want to do is first become aware that we have assumptions and biases, that those assumptions and biases are necessarily subjective. They're not objective. Um, and some of them might not be serving us. A lot of them do, but some of them mm -hmm. might not be. And how do we know? Well, sometimes we learn that from other people. And then how do we let go of those? Now, that's what's really hard, is how do we let go of an assumption biases that we had before, especially if we've defined ourselves by it? That's really hard, because that's really stepping into uncertainty, into yeah, that not really, knowing. really hard. <laughs> yeah? But that's right. the beauty of it, and that's where true growth lives. I imagine in your life, right, in your own personal life, to get where you are, you've been able to let go of certain assumptions and biases that you've had. Right? But first, you had to become aware that you had them. And that's humility. I see, I see, I see. That actually makes a lot more sense now. Um, uh, the distinction between like positive and negative assumptions for yourself. Because I think all the things that you listed at first when you were explaining to me that assumptions are something that we have to have, we're all positive assumptions, such as assuming that the car on the other side of the road isn't going to crash into you. Yeah. But 
the like you said the important the, the the difficult part is making that distinction between the assumptions that are and are not serving us so yeah. there's one i experienced personally myself my mom is uh she's filipino and um she grew up in i'd say uh well i don't really know respective to the rest of the philippines since everyone kind of does in the philippines but she grew up in poverty mm-hmm. so she has this continuous mindset of like a lack of abundance yeah. where no matter what she has to do, she must save. She must save. Um, people are out there to right. steal from her, to get from her. She needs to like protect her energy and protect her, her money. Um, even now when my dad is uh, doing fairly well, she still continues to spend hours, hours on Sundays and other days just cutting coupons, trying to save as much money as possible. I think I inherited this from her. Because mm-hmm. I started walking through life with like a lack of abundance. Like I need to save money. I don't have anything. Even though I think that is a safe assumption to make if you are trying to, I guess, save up or prepare for a better future. I found that I walked through life with uh, not quite a positive outlook. And I think it hindered my overall happiness. Sure. So every, isn't that interesting? So that's like being prepared. So you were, we're all prepared for our future moments. So every moment in some sense is a preparation for the next moment. So it's, so it's how you're entering each moment. So that determines how you're going to respond to that moment. Okay. Um, so if you're entering with, with fear, any moment with fear or with a lack of abundance or um, a sense of, so of paranoia or whatever it might be, right? That's going to necessarily shape your reflexive response to that moment, right? And then that's what your brain's now going to encode, okay? So it's like, okay, I'm gonna enter with negativity. Uh, so I'll give you an example. So when someone su- is suffering from anxiety, if I, uh, and now that, that source of anxiety could be money, it could be a number of things. Your mom is, is, is experiencing, say, anxiety about the future. So anxiety is almost always tied mm-hmm. to the future. In her case, maybe it's financial future, okay? Um, and so when we're experiencing anxiety, if, uh, if I give you a neutral face, you will actually perceive that face to be threatening of the threat response. In other words, you'll, mm. you'll see this face as being not neutral in a negative way. Mm. Now, let's say you and I meet, okay? So let's show how this can actually facilitate a positive feedback that your brain now encodes, okay? All of which is constructed by you. So let's say you and I meet, and let's say um, you're anxious, Okay, now, and I just met you, let's say, as as an objectively neutral face. Everyone else would say Bo is neutral, okay? But you see me, because you're anxious, as being a bit threatening. Like, I don't like you, or I'm negative towards you, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, God, Bo's negative towards me. That's what your brain's telling you. Well, if you're feeling that way, it's like, what an asshole. I mean, I haven't even met him yet. I mean, we're just meaning, why would he be (laughs) negative towards me, Right? Um, and now you engage with me in a negative way because you've perceived me to be starting the conversation in a negative way because you're anxious. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, wait a minute, Niall's like, I haven't even spoken to him yet and he's already sort of antagonistic towards me. So now I am going to be negative mm-hmm. toward you. And it's like, ah, see, I knew it, right? I knew he was negative, right? Because I've rushed <laughs> right? It's like, ah, oh, well, what an asshole, right? And so now, and now we're on a positive feedback cycle in the negative direction, right? Yeah. And now all of that confirmed your previous assumptions that, oh yeah, the people I meet 
strangers or scientists or however you get labeled, people with blonde hair, circular glasses, whatever it might be. See, I knew, I knew that they were X, right? All of which you created and then perpetuated through the feedback. So we so often create the very context that we actually struggle with, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the only way to, to move away from that is to become aware that that's what you're doing. So your mom is, is doing that. And so she's perpetuating it. And so she'll be looking. Right. And then what's more is she'll be looking for evidence to confirm the fact that she should continue to do coupon cutting. Like she'll read the newspaper. And it's like, ah, I see interest rates are going up. Even though there might have been 10 other articles about how the economy is improving, there's one that demonstrates some risk. And that's the one she'll read. And that's the one she'll remember. So we then start looking for evidence to confirm what we think to be true already because we don't want to be uncertain, because we don't want to be wrong. Saying, I don't know is a really hard thing, which is why I've got a tattoo here that says, I don't know, right? Because I think that's a superpower. To, to, to not know is a great thing, right? That's where all wonderful things begin, right? They don't begin with knowing. They begin with a question, not with an answer. I think that's one of the things that scares me about astrology science. With astrology? Why is that? I love all my friends that are super into astrology. I, I live in Los Angeles, so oh, it's pretty prominent here. Sure. You know, but um, I think it's that like a pre-perceived notion that when you ask someone what they are and I reply, I'm a Leo, then they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking Leo again. Yeah. And, I, then, they'll I be, just, I, and then you'll do something and they'll say... Oh yeah, that's what Leos do. Even though you might have done ninety nine other <laughs> ninety nine other things, but that one thing is yeah, like yeah, a yeah. Leo, right? Which everyone does, right? Um, and and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm an Aries. I don't really know what that even means, but um, <laughs> but but I mean, what it, again? It demonstrates that we have this fundamental need to create. Um, to decrease certainty by creating meaning and then, and then project those meanings onto other people. But those meanings that we project onto other people are grounded on our history, our assumptions, our bias, our culture, whatever it might be, right? And then we project it onto you, right? In the mm -hmm. same way that, and I'll use the example. So, um, you know, those plants back there are not green, right? They look green, but where does the greenness live? The greenness lives in your head. There's light coming from there, but it's not green, right? You are literally coloring those leaves, right? The colors inside your head projected outward. But what you do for surfaces, so color doesn't exist, but light does, okay? So if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hit, does it make a sound? The answer is no, right? Construct your brain. But what we do for color, we do for other people. We literally color other people, right? You're projecting a meaning onto them based on your history, your assumptions. So when you don't understand someone, actually it turns out that they might be completely internally consistent within their own logic. But you're thinking, wait a minute, Bo did this. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense because I wouldn't have done that. So he must be, must be something wrong with him, right? But if you actually look to find out why I did that, not simply what I did, then you're actually much more um, uh, likely to um, better understand me, right? Because you're stepping outside your own assumptions and biases. You define that as one being more open-minded or working towards that? Yes, 
right? To be more open-minded, which is um, open to the possibility of being wrong, right? And that's a great thing because otherwise, how are you going to learn, right? Imagine, you know, you're meeting someone for the first time. Now, when you first meet them, a man or a woman, what, you know, you're meeting someone, you're, you're going to treat them like the average of that thing, right? If it's a man, you're going to treat them like the average man that you've ever met before. Now imagine you can, or a woman, you're going to treat her like the average woman you've ever met before in a way. You're, you're going to treat her according to your internal stereotype, okay? There's nothing else you can do about it, right? Because you don't know this person, right? So you, that's all you have access to at the moment, right? But now imagine you stick with that perception of them. Your perception of them has never evolved. You're just continuing to treat them like a stereotype. They're not going to hear, feel heard by you. They're not going to feel cared for by you. It's like, wait a minute, you don't even know who I am. You're just projecting onto me what you think to be a woman or a man, but you've not updated or changed your assumptions based, based on who actually who I am. Right? Mm -hmm. So we can okay. update okay. these things. So the aim is to actually expand your assumptions and bias, make them more complex, make them more interesting, make them more contextual, make them more relevant to the person or the context in which you're engaging. So... How can we create amazing content since um, we're here and, talking through, uh, talking about mystery and surprise. And I do feel like this is, uh, these two things are one of the things that intrigue people the most. And um, so I've, uh, we, we can see this growing in, in the fitness industry. Um, we would, we would have been awe, in awe at like these dry shredded, but like muscular physiques, especially back in the day when we saw them online and we'd wonder, you know, how are they looking like that? Like, what is their secret? Um, and as the industry grew more and more information was brought to light through content that now the narrative is, are they natty or not? Are they natural or uh, basically people are wondering if these athletes who may be withholding information are on steroids. Okay. And so, I think this is like the biggest mystery of the fitness industry nowadays so much so that I think people are now automatically jumping to the worst possible scenario, believing that everybody is on steroids, <laughs> which, um, and all simply to, you know, get an answer and have closure. Mm. So I, it's something that I personally am not the biggest fan of because I think this has taken away the awe and the mystery of the fitness industry that has, motivated people and inspired people to do something of themselves or like create a fit, you know, a, f a fitter body or even go into social media themselves and create content. Um, cause back in the day, you know, people would see these physiques and they'd just be like, wow, these are so amazing. Um, I'm not sure how they do it, but I want to get there someday. So I'll try. Whereas nowadays everyone's like, we have the answer. They're on steroids. I'm never going to take steroids. Might as well not even try. Right. Interesting. That's what's happening. Is it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm seeing it very commonly. There are some people, of course, you can make exceptions that like some people are still working towards, you know, a better self or maybe more people are actually engaging in more steroid use. But um, for sure, it's a big topic in the industry. Like you'll see it all on YouTube about, is this guy natty or not? Is this natty or not? There's so many natty or not videos now. What's it called? Natty or not? Yeah, natty or not. So natural or oh, natural, not, natural okay. or enhanced. It's yeah. essentially, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and and your experience is that people, that's a real debate, and people are then um, 
focused uh, and and then they use it as an opportunity to then not do anything. To then, I think it discourages a lot of people. So I, I have a view. Why do you think it would discourage people? I think because some people, I think because most people are uh, like the average, the average person doesn't want to become a Mr. Olympian bodybuilder. You know okay. what I mean? The average person most likely does not want to induce themselves to taking steroids or performance enhancing drugs or even even getting a needle, you know, most people don't even want to get a flu shot. So uh, I think this really highly discourages a lot of people because they believe this is the route that they must take in order to achieve the physiques that they look up to. So it becomes unattainable. Right. Yeah. To them. Uh, and I think, so I, I can understand that to a certain extent. So um, I think when we see people doing remarkable things, What's really important is, uh, and if they're doing remarkable things without enhancement, whether it be their body or their mind or whatever it might be, right, um, is to not um, uh, turn them into gods, but to normalize them. Because to normalize them means that, oh, wait, most bodies can actually do this then most minds can actually do this and it becomes obtainable. And I think that's really important for um, the, the, the element of natural. It's like, okay, this is something that is achievable. What's lacking then, is, now you have genetic variations, of course, and some bodies are just simply not achievable by other, in, in some, with some genetics versus others, right? Some people just have more definition in terms of anatomy than others. That's just, you know, they're just you know, some, just in the same way, some people are taller than others. There's nothing you can do about that. That's just a genetic thing, right? Um, but there, but within your genetics, there's a great deal we can do. Um, and the motivation is so. Whenever I see someone doing something brilliant, um, I want to normalize them. What I mean by that is it's not I don't want to take them down. It's I want to say, look, isn't that wonderful what they've been able to do with all the capacities that we all have? It was that they chose to do that. Now you might not choose to do that, but don't choose. Don't say you can't do it, because this person clearly demonstrates you can. And so I think that's the really important aspect of the, the the naturalness in the sense that it's within my capacity, sort of my agency. With that said, I think one of our when we are faced with change, one of our bi- typical responses is to do nothing, is to not change, is to resist change. Because almost everything in life that is positive requires energy, right? Um, think about it. I mean, eating lots of food and crap food doesn't require a lot of effort, right? But waking up at 5.30 or 6 to go to the gym and go for a run, all that, all that requires energy, okay? Well, during evolution, we didn't want to spend energy. We wanted to conserve energy. Because to spend excess energy was a bad idea because we were just basically eating lettuce, right? We had a very low caloric um, diet. So if you go to Africa and you watch a cheetah, they're usually just sort of sitting there resting because the cheetah only gets like five goes to catch the prey. If she doesn't catch it on the fifth go, she's dead. She doesn't have any more energy to go catch a gazelle, right? So we want to conserve energy. So when you hear that voice, often it's the voice that's saying, hey, let's just conserve that energy. So what we'll then do is we'll come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses to listen to that voice rather than to try to ignore that voice. 
So that can also be a strategy for saying, oh, well, they're just doing steroids, even if they're not. Because, oh, well, now I might as well not go to the gym anymore. Because I'll never be able to achieve that, right? So now we can use that as a justification for listening to my voice. Listening to that voice that's trying to stop me from using energy. I see. That, that does make a lot of sense. So it can be an excuse to stand still. Right. I do feel like that, this is simply an observation of mine, but I do feel like that's why it, we tend to really like to hear about negative things. Mm. You know, I think it just, uh, in yeah. reference to ourselves and our own experiences, makes us feel a little bit better. <laughs> that's, sadly, I think that's largely true, right? And mm-hmm. uh, that's right, to be a little bit, to feel like you're a little bit better than average. Like if you, if you, if you're, I've done this in talks, you know, you've got a room full, of, let's say it's men, you've got a thousand men there. And you say, okay, how many of you are better than average drivers? Almost every single man will put their hand up. (laughs) And I say, you do realize that's statistically impossible, right? (laughs) You have to be less than average, right? You can't all be above average because there's not a room full of F1 drivers, Formula One drivers, right? So half of you have to be worse than average. But we all have this bias that we're a little bit better than average, right? And most things. Mm. <laughs> That's so funny. So why is mystery so intriguing for us? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we hate uncertainty. On the other hand, mm-hmm. we also, um, evolution also gave us a desire t- to discover. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And so mystery is the possibility of discovery. And, mm. Right? And so there's something called an intrinsic reward. Okay? So when you exercise... When you're lifting weights, you I imagine you feel pretty good afterward, right? You're getting an intrinsic- oh, I feel amazing afterwards. Right? You're getting an intrinsic yeah. reward. Why? Because evolution said, that's a good idea. Let's make sure, you know, they keep doing that, <laughs> right? That's what an orgasm is, right? An orgasm is nature saying, that's a good idea. It's really good that these, these critters reproduce. Let's give them an intrinsic <laughs> reward that maintains that, that behavior. Not an extrinsic. Extrinsic reward would be like money, Okay. You know, Nile goes, does something, I give you money. It's different from the thing that you do, okay? Whereas play is an intrinsic word. What's the reward of play? It's play, okay? What's the reward of skiing? Mm-hmm. It's skiing. There's no other reward than the, than the activity itself. So when you're weightlifting, etc., you're getting an intrinsic reward because evolution said it's better to be strong than not strong, okay? So coming back to mystery your brain also gets an intrinsic reward when it discovers something, when it comes to understand something. Mm. Because when I understand something, that's what you're in the service of right now in this podcast, right? You're trying to help people understand something. And when the penny drops for people, they'll get an intrinsic reward. It's like, a bit like when the DJ drops the beat. It's like, because when you understand something, you're now more a more adaptable person. You're a more resilient person. Because you can think better, you can think more complexly, you have more degrees of freedom in your, in your mental movement. The same reason mm-hmm. why when you stretch, right? You get an intrinsic reward because now your body's more flexible, it's more adaptable, it's more agile. Okay? So mystery is the beginning of the process of coming to understanding, right? It's intriguing, mm-hmm. it's a question, but it's, it's uncertainty within the context of play. Play is the place where we actually love uncertainty, right? To not know who's going to win is why it's fun, okay? So evolution Mm -hmm. gave us play as a brain state that says, oh, I love uncertainty. Most, almost every single instance, we hate uncertainty, 
except in the context of play, right? And so mystery is kind of like that uncertainty within the context of play because you're now on the path to potentially understanding something. discovery. We love okay. discovery. I feel we can create great content by like utilizing that into yeah. our ideas, um, creating some some kind of mystery and then either choosing to relieve that person and give them that closure at the very end that's or right. leave them on a cliffhanger for like the next well, episode. So that's something. what marketing does, right? And that's what Game of Thrones does, right? So mm -hmm. this is a trajectory. So Game of Thrones, did you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. 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 Okay. So you know how they finish it on a minor chord. They don't give you closure right? uh -huh. because they know your brain so needs that closure that you're going to come back to the next episode in order to get that closure. So what they're really good at is knowing which minor chord to finish on, which minor chord to drop it to. It's like, ah, oh, they give you just enough, but not, they give you some, but not enough, right? And so notice like, you know, some podcasts and some advertising, um, you know, you'll see the headlines. I can't believe he said dot, 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 right? And it's like, oh, what did he say? It was Trump, whoever it might've been, right? And now I want to know what he said, right? And so they'll give you that clip here. They'll give you that, they won't give you that closure. Um, mm -hmm. So that can often be used, but it can also be used to control people, right? So it can be used in a positive way but it can also be you to be weaponized. So for instance, maybe you will have experienced it in relationships where we will create uncertainty in someone else's mind. Like, where were you last night? Ah, oh, it's just out. What were you doing? Ah, oh, it's nothing. Right. I now know you want to know an answer, but I'm creating the uncertainty in you. But I also know I'm the only one who can relieve that uncertainty. We now have a power dynamic. Oh, that's have, up. Now, isn't it though? But people do this in couples all the time, all the time they do this to each other, right? And, yeah. um, and because unfortunately people are trying to control each other because yeah. part of the problem of a relationship is also the beautiful thing of a relationship is now my happiness is dependent on the other person, right? But shit, I can't, there's only, you know, what am I going to do there? So one way is I can control them, right? To make sure they behave mm -hmm. in certain ways. So I'll try to create mm -hmm. a power dynamic over them. And I can do that by creating uncertainty in their life to which I'm the only one to relieve it because now they're going to keep needing me. Right? Right. And we do this, but it's not healthy. Right? I agree, yeah. And that's not where love lives at all. Mm -hmm. And that's what politicians do. They'll say, look, the world's falling apart, but I'm the only one who can to, to save the day, right? Without naming names. This is a very, this is a strategy that, people use because we people know how ins difficult uncertainty is so if i create it but i'm the one who can relieve it i now have a power dynamic so we can use right. it for the positive to to relieve someone's uncertainty to give them closure or we can actually use it as a negative to create uncertainty in order to have power mm -hmm. and what you do reveals you it does for sure. Right. We'll get right back to the podcast in a second, but I just wanted to take this break to thank you guys immensely because this podcast is my favorite content to create and I couldn't have done it without you guys. Contributing to it will further help its growth and allow us to listen to more amazing guests such as the one you're listening to today. So if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating us a five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you find your podcast or subscribing to the YouTube channel. And if you would like to help fund the podcast, you can do so by using Nile for a discount off of Young LA Clothing or Huge Supplements. Thank you guys again so much. 
we'll be right back to the podcast. I personally feel like I've seen this in kind of like this whole like spiritual space of like healing from your relationships, mm-hmm. like oh, in doing so and healing from like your past traumas, you can move forward into a place where you don't do these, you know, act out in these like, like things that can be traumatic to your next partner. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's remarkable how much people will bring with them into their next relationship. The metaphor I use Mm -hmm. is, let's say you're walking outside and you've got dog poo on your shoes. Would you walk into someone else's house? And, (laughs) you know, like, what are you doing? You're walking all over my carpet with dog poo and you know you have dog poo on your shoes. I mean, if you didn't know, that's an accident, right? But you actually knew this? Why wouldn't you leave your shoes at the door before you came into this space? Right? Mm -hmm. And so... I find it remarkable how people will bring the dog poo with them from the past, right? Yeah. And knowingly. Right. Now, if they're unknowingly, that's different, right? Now, it's through mm. the relationship. They can realize, oh, wait a minute. I've got something on my shoes. I didn't realize. I'm so sorry. Let me be humble. Let me do something about this, um, right? And mm, will you yeah. support me in that process, please, you know? that's now. Mm. Now, we're in a loving relationship. I feel many times it's because m- m- we try to we want to continue to protect ourselves, but mm-hmm. I think in not realizing that we're bringing along those things from our past relationships, we really are just hurting ourselves even more in the future. That's right. Absolutely right. Completely right. We're, we're increasing the probability of experiencing the very thing that we don't want. So mm-hmm. let's say I have a fear of abandonment. Now I'll then verify, be careful. I'm not going to really truly submit. I'm not going to surrender to the relationship. Right. And now the other person feels, oh, well, Bo's feeling distant. He doesn't get intimate. And now they're going to become distant. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. See, I knew it was distant. And now basically I'm going to create the very context of being left, which will confirm my assumption that I get left. Then that's in the next relationship. Well, this relationship is going to probably end badly as well. What do you think happens? Mm-hmm. In other words, you're preparing yourself in a certain way to engage with uncertainty, which again, is all about preparation. It's all about preparation. How do I prepare myself? And every moment is a preparation for the next moment. Can you explain again the whole how to prepare ourselves for the next moment? Oh, so how to prepare myself for the next moment? There's there's a number of ways, What right? One is, um, so I don't talk about mindsets. I talk about ways of being, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's your way of being towards life. And so I think that there are certain ways of being that are just simply better than other ways of being. So to engage in light, so and that's where um, this is a practice. In the same way you're going to practice lifting weights, your brain's like a muscle, you're going to practice using the muscle of your brain um, to engage in the world in a certain way. So for instance, curiosity, compassion, courage, I call them the seed. That every situation I'm going to engage with courage or compassion or curiosity, etc., with care. Okay, um, and so by embodying these, I'm now preparing myself for my. It's basically deciding what are your internal laws of physics. What are the ways you're going to relate to the world, and you can choose them. Mm-hmm. And again, some ways of relating to the world are simply better than others, depending on what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve a fulfilled life, a beautiful life, beautiful relationships. Well, then there are better laws of physics than others, internal laws of physics than others, right? So it's deciding what those are and then living them. And this is where you have to be congruent. You have to align 
your words, intentions, and actions with who you actually are as well. Right? Mm-hmm. So many times people will say, well, that's my intention. Like, oh, but it's intention that counts. It's like, no, it's not. If, it's, if you don't follow through with action, it'd probably be better not to have that intention. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's really hard. It's really important to have good intentions, but equally to then follow them on with actions. And now that every time you, you do that alignment, you're preparing your brain. Right? You're creating a habit. You're creating future positive reflexes. Right? But you're deciding what your, your underlying laws of physics are in which you're going to engage with the world. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to ask yourself, gotcha. why, why, why is one law of physics harder than another? Why is it so hard for me to engage with compassion with someone I'm meant to be loving? Why is that so hard for me? Is it about that person? Is it about the dynamic? Or is it something about my history? And that's why the past is so dangerous. Dangerous? But inevitable, right? But equally, if I can re-mean my past, you can never go back and change your change what happened. But you can change the meaning of what happened. Right? Something that might have happened in your past that was very difficult. Right. Now, through and this is basically what many therapies are trying to do. I call it re-meaning, re-meaning your past in order to change your future. Right. If everything I'm doing right now is grounded in my past meanings then if I change my past meanings, I actually change my present and my future. But let's say something very painful happened in the past, and I've attached to it something very negative. Now let's say as a consequence of that experience, I was actually in a position to save someone's life, their emotional life, their mental life, their physical life, let's say. At that moment, I'm in a way grateful for that thing that happened in my past. Let's say because I was able to have empathy towards this person that no one else was able to have because I had a similar experience. I've now re-meaned, possibly re-meaned, the significance of that thing that happened in my past and now became something that empowered me to help someone else. Right? Now, I've actually, in many literal senses, changed the meaning of my past. I didn't change what happened, but I changed Mm -hmm. the meaning of what happened. And now, the next time I engage in this situation, I'm going to be able to engage with it in a different way. I think this is a super powerful in where sometimes we look at some things, some, some actions from our past or some things that we've experienced as um, us being a victim to it versus um, us having had control over the situation. And I think um, in relieving ourselves from like victimizing ourselves, that gives us more power to change that for the future. So say like there was a, um, like you encounter a breakup and I think oftentimes more than not a lot of times we hear this person was toxic. This person wasn't good for me. Like they yeah. did this, they did that. Right. And I feel, yes, that could be true. Or, mm-hmm. uh, the person saying these things could just be victimizing themselves and thus they are now lacking the power to make a change in the next relationship. Exactly right. Exactly right. And we can, we can, so we can use the word victimization or we can just use the word, you know, understanding. So one of the reasons why I try to avoid the word blame is because, um, isn't it interesting how we have a very strong desire and propensity to blame something else on something that's around us? Now, sometimes that is just true, right? A plane crashed into my house. There's nothing I could do about that, right? Shit happens. There are things that happen that are completely beyond our control. Um, uh, but we have, in some sense, a lot more agency than maybe we think we are in the context that we actually create. 
But when we, as soon as we blame something onto someone else, um, then it's interesting. Why do we even do that in the first place? Well, one of the fundamentals we have is to not be extra, um, extra communicated. We want, we want to belong. We have a very strong need to belong. Well, if, if I, if it's not my fault, then maybe I'm less likely to be kicked out of the group. Okay. So there's this very strong sense to not do anything wrong. Because to do something wrong means I could be excommunicated. Okay, so wild dogs, for instance, if one of the wild dogs does something wrong, they don't kill it, they just kick it out. And it follows along the troop, but eventually it dies because we cannot live on our own. Natural systems are very difficult to live on their own. We need others, okay? So that could, could be one of the drivers of blaming. But the irony is, you've now just disempowered yourself. You've now taken away the very thing that you actually have agency over, which is you. So, so actually, these are wonderful opportunities to expand yourself. So when I'm in conflict, right, if I'm in conflict with a um, person I'm with, and let's say, you know, maybe I'm like anyone else, I think, okay, I'm right, and she's wrong, or whatever, you know, and, and then when I'm, when I realize, wait a minute, I'm the asshole here, I'm the one doing something wrong, I have a real mixed feeling. Because on the one hand, I still have all that, all those, you know, all that brain state of being angry, but I also have an excitement. It's like, ah, oh, cool. I can do something about that. I just, oh, and, and then my other one is, oh, I feel bad. I feel awful. I cause pain that I don't want to cause. I don't want to hurt someone purpose, you know, intentionally. Why, you know, most of us don't want to hurt someone intentionally. So, and, and so to admit that I hurt you is a very hard thing to do. So that's for the again, humility. So I feel that, that, that residual anger, I feel the guilt of hurting, but I also personally feel an excitement because it's like, oh, cool, I have an opportunity to expand myself now that I didn't have before. Right. Which of those three you want to focus on is up to you. And I would suggest there's one that's maybe better to focus on the others, though the others are also very natural feelings. You said uh, the source of creativity is humility. Yeah. Can you explain this? And um, would you happen to have a way that we can integrate this into becoming more creative with our work, content, or art? Yeah. So, um, hum what humility is for me the the ability and the strength to admit that I don't know. Okay. So, um, often when I start my talks with you know senior leadership teams, or something, I'll say you know I want you to know less at the end than you know now. Wait a minute, we didn't pay you for us to know less. What are you talking about? <laughs> we, we, we paid you to actually know more. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to know less, but understand more. Right? So, um, one of our biggest, I call it the certainty trap. One of our biggest barriers to creativity is certainty. Like, I know. How many times have you heard, well, that's just, this is me. This is who I am. Right? In other words, when we face with change, we don't want to change. Right? And we'll come up with all kinds of reasons to stand still. Okay? Um, mm -hmm. and one of the ways we stand still is by being certain. So, and then we'll, you know, manufacture that certainty and look for evidence, etc. But creativity doesn't begin with certainty. It begins with uncertainty, right? Creativity begins with not knowing, right? How could it begin with knowing in some sense, right? Now it could have knowing like faith that I'm going to create something. That's okay. Right. But I mean a different kind of knowing like, no, this, there's one way of doing something. How can you be creative from that? Right. So you have to step, you have to step into doubt. The first step to create something is doubt. 
Um, but we, 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 we're, we struggle with doubt. And then humility is that superpower that is okay with doubting. In fact, it celebrates doubting, right? So that's one way that, hum- and then to, t- and then the way we can actually do that within creativity is to play, which we mentioned before. Because mm, play is that brain state that actually wants to doubt, uh, right? Okay. It's like, ah, cool, right. I don't know. And that's actually what science is. Science is nothing more than play with intention. Because in science, we love not knowing. That's the whole point of it. The point is not to come up with answers. The point is to come up with better and better questions, right? Because a brilliant question creates possibility, right? So it's still play, right? I'd say anything that's creative is play with intention because it's the brain state that enables you to doubt what you thought to be true before. I see. It makes a lot more sense. So experimenting, playing with your content as if you don't know being naive maybe maybe say that yeah right right i think something that i've always tried to stand by and a uh, mantra i hold for myself is um being process oriented over outcome oriented yeah i feel whenever i'm outcome oriented i feel like i think i know what i should do to get the outcome but then when the outcome doesn't happen i get disappointed i get discouraged yeah i get demotivated yeah so but i, I do feel that yeah, I think that's I, a, I do that's feel a good if I, strategy. If I, right, if I if I stay if I stay process oriented, there's a little different mindset that comes along with that. I feel a little bit more empowered, and I feel like there is more room for for experimentation and more creativity. Um, I think there's just a more empowering feeling about going about it, which I think will also relate to to better content. Yeah, I agree with you. So it's it's so a lot of people say you need to set goals, and I think you know there's nothing wrong with setting goals, but not that you should achieve them. Right. Goals should be a reason for getting out of bed in the morning type goals. Like that, those, that's your motivation. But if you're, if you achieve, aim to achieve your goal at all costs, then what happens when the world changes? Do you still want to achieve your goal? Maybe, maybe, right? But maybe not. You might have missed so many other opportunities along the way because you were blinkered, right? The greatest discoveries, at least in science, if not everywhere, were accidental. So penicillin, you'll be familiar with penicillin, you know, that one, the first antibiotic, right? Um, so penicillin was discovered accidentally, right? He had a bunch of stuff in a petri dish, right? Something got spilled on it and it killed the stuff. And, and in some sense, he was just a bad lab person, right? He had a messy lab, but he had a brain that was prepared to say, wait a minute, what happened there? I don't get that, right? He was in a play state. He was willing to say, huh? and be curious, right? As opposed to, oh, shit, and throw it into the bin. That's not what I expected. I expected this. Let's keep going to that. He wasn't open to possibility. So goals are great to drive you, but not necessarily the things to achieve. What you want to achieve is the process, as you're saying, and just to do things beautifully. So increasingly, I'm 55 years old now, and I'm finding that, you know, life's short, right? And as you get older, you realize life is short, right? And you just don't want unnecessary dramas. You know, you want, you know, things that are meaningful, et cetera. And so I've increasingly realized that it's in the, it's in pursuing, um, it's in pursuing doing things beautifully that matters, whatever that might be. Did you do it beautifully? Now, that doesn't mean positively. You know, you can be in pain beautifully. You can break up beautifully, 
Equally, you can make love beautifully. You can create beautifully, right? It's to do things well, that process. And then I even say to people, you know, let's, let's think about not even defining ourselves as a noun, you know, a thing. Let's define ourselves as a process, as a verb, as an action, right? As someone is, I'm someone who expands, cool. Well, that can look like so many different ways, right? I see. So I have these last couple of questions. Sure. Um, so did you have experiments on the, uh, the power of touch and maybe the power of home? As of recently? Yeah. So touch is a brilliant, both brilliant topics. I mean, first of all, um, we are doing experiments on touch now. We're also doing experiments on immersion and sound immersion and things like this. Um, but touch is a fundamental need that we have. Um, and I, I find it so sad how in so many cultures there's a lack of touch, right? Um, because it's it's just, it's one of our, it's our, I'd argue possibly it's one of our most basic sensations and perceptions um it's the first thing that babies come into the world with is touch and then smell and, and sight is one of the last ones right um and so there are experiments not my experience but experiments showing that if you bring say a baby a primate into the world and you don't touch that primate and it's not able to touch its mother right its immune system completely collapses and can die and there are children, for instance, there's a, there's a well-known, um, terribly sad experience that happened uh, in, with orphanages where kids were just isolated and they were never touched and they just faded away, right? So touch is fundamental, but then we can explore what is touch? Is it just physical or to listen to someone? Can that be touch? truly look at someone can that be touch right is listening to touch someone so um so touch is a super powerful we're creating immersive experiences around touch um and in terms of home we did a study talk showing that actually your brain perceives your home to be a living thing that actually thinks something about you and that maybe we evolve to have a deep meaning relationship to the space around us that we call home and that we could actually improve someone's emotional and physical well-being by improving that relationship to their home, not to their house, but to their home, right? And, and we actually showed in our studies that we could decrease anxiety and decrease loneliness by getting young people to engage with their home in, in a certain way. It's mm. fascinating. And the office, we don't it see is. that way, right? We don't see the office as a dead yeah. space, but your brain... We believe our, your brain actually unconsciously perceives this space around us, even though it's made up of inanimate object, to be alive and to have feelings about it. It actually improves our own self-perception and also mm. how we perceive homes and, and what, which homes do we perceive to have more home love than others is very much a reflection mm -hmm. of who we are. I, uh, this is a little bit personal, but um, nothing to my family. I think it's just cultural. But in my past, uh, I had never really truly feel seen. I never really shared any, um, I guess, emotional bonding with my my family or my mother. Um, uh, and I, I even was in a fraternity in college, and I still didn't really experience really any feeling of like family, um, maybe just like a few friends here or there. But some of these were more associated with just the association itself. <clears throat> and 
I think when I moved to San Diego, that all completely changed. Um, the people that I was around, I I, th- I don't think I've ever really experienced so much like feeling of like uncondi- unconditional love there. And that I found, I started defining as my home. Like these people were, were my home. Um, and then I moved to LA in January. And I remember telling people like, oh, like how did you like San Diego and stuff and all like, that'll always be my home. I love that place. Like I love the people that are there. They've changed me. And I think that is true to an extent. However, literally just like a couple months ago, I started defining here as my home. I started um, creating a new community and I started getting much, much closer to this new community that I have here in LA and um, spent a lot of time with them recently. And uh, every time I'm around them, I feel, I feel happy. I feel part of something big. I feel, um, I feel loved and I feel happy to like give love back and everything. It's just, uh, it was just an observation that I simply made that, my my definition of home and where I place my home is changing. That's wonderful. In some sense, it's changing in terms of location, but maybe what's not changing is the basis for the home love. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's more than just the concept of community. I think it's where we actually expand ourselves to define ourselves as something that's larger than us. So because we look after things to which we identify, and so if now if you're identifying with your friends and that community, now you're looking after them. And also, so a lot of it has probably as, as much to do with you as it does to, the, to do with them. So when people are in a relationship, they can ask themselves, how do I, um, who am I in this relationship? Does this relationship, this interaction, am I a more beautiful person in the context of this interaction than in a different interaction. Because this interaction matters, a bit like a whirlpool. A whirlpool is a consequence of, emer- of interacting water molecules, right? So, you know, that love is that whirlpool that results from that interaction. So it's that interaction with, between you and, those, and your friends and your community that is creating that beautiful whirlpool experience that brings out and actually maybe creates that best part of you. And that's what feels like home. Is when that best part of you is brought out and created through that interaction. I have one last question to ask you that I ask uh, everyone in every uh, every episode. But uh, if you had, uh, if you were to die tomorrow, hypothetically, and you had one thing, one message that you could send out to the entire world right now, what would it be? <laughs> it's funny. I've been thinking about this recently. Um, what would that message be? Well, it's going to be kind of cliched. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, but but I'm okay with the cliche because it's just true. Which is that love is the driving motivation, but that love is an action. It's not words, right? People who do abominable things say they do it in the name of love. Love is what you're doing, and love is an emergent interaction, a bit like you're just described with that home, right? That to me is love. And it's how you behave and what you're actually doing. And it's not the words that you use. So to mm-hmm. manifest love in what you do, not just in addition to what you say. I love that, man. <laughs> cool. <laughs> love it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, where can everybody find you? Well, people can find us in a number of places. First of all, we have two Instagram um, threads. One is the Lab of Misfits. Um, and, and one is my personal. 
Um, and in both cases, I tend not to talk about personal life, but I, I talk about perception and how to expand your perception um, as a means to increasing your health, physical and, and emotional men- and perceptual health. So those are the two things. One is the Lab of Misfits and one is myself. And the other is our my lab's webpage, the labofmisfits.com. And there people can actually do assessments on themselves and come to better understand themselves. And we call it perceptual intelligence to become more intelligent about how and why you're seeing the world. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. And you can support the podcast, um, non-fun support the podcast by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you find your podcast and subscribing to the YouTube channel. And then, of course, if you'd like to help fund the podcast, and you can do so by using discount code Nile off of Young LA Clothing and Huge Supplements. Thank you, Dr. Bo Lotto, for coming on the podcast again. That was an awesome podcast. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned a lot in literally just the span of an hour. Cool. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, man. Thank you again so much. Right. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Ciao.